Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in to last week's episode with Claire Balding and a big welcome to my new listeners stateside. The podcast really took flight in the US over the last couple of weeks. So thank you so much for being here. I think you'll like today's episode. As a travel lover, this week's guest is someone I have been really looking forward to you all hearing from. She's achieved something that no one else on the podcast has done before. In October 2019, Jessica Nabongo completed the final stretch of an epic two and a half year journey where she traveled to every country in the world, all 195 UN member states, becoming the first black woman in history to do so. On top of that, 89 of these countries she traveled to solo. And by the way, Jessica is still in her mid 30s. So where do you start with someone who has been everywhere? How do you get going with their travel diaries? These were the questions I was asking myself when I was preparing. So the episode starts with us getting to know a bit more about Jessica, her background, what motivated her to take on this challenge. And then we delve deep into loads of the different countries she experienced. I wanted to ask about the ones that I knew very little about that most people haven't visited. Because, you know, if you get up that list of the 195 countries, like give it a Google now and have a scroll through them. You may well see some places on that list that you can't position in your head geographically or there were even a couple that I didn't even recognize at all. So it was really those kind of lesser known countries in particular that piqued my curiosity. I also asked you guys on Instagram a while ago what countries you wanted to hear about most from Jessica. I got so many responses but the winners so to speak were Tuvalu, and Eritrea. So she gives us a great insight into both of those destinations. And also what you might not expect is that I think for the most part, Jessica spent a really decent length of time in each of these countries too. So it's not like she was kind of country counting, trying to get from place to place. She gives us a real idea of what these different countries feel like, different destinations. She shares with us what she learned along the way, the highs and lows. And I think she has a really profound outlook on humanity that she clearly took into her travels, which grew and was reinforced by her positive experiences along the way throughout this mammoth challenge. So from Uganda to Pakistan, Cuba to Turkmenistan, and many, many destinations in between. Let's get started. Jessica Navongo, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is so exciting to be speaking with you today. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me, Holly. Oh my God. It's an interview I've been looking forward to so much. <laughs> where are you? Because your your blog, The Catch Me If You Can, like where, we're catching you where now? Uh, I'm in Punta Mita, Mexico. I just got here yesterday afternoon. Oh, wow. Okay, nice. So uh, what are you doing there? What are you up to? I'm actually here to finish the edits on my book. So this is like my happy place. I came and I wrote about 80% of my book here in May, June, July. Um, And so I just came back to get this final editing push done. How exciting. Oh, well, that is 
a beautiful place to be getting some creative inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. It's a little humid, but it's nice. So with 195 countries that we could potentially be covering today, I think we need to get straight in to the first chapter of Let's your travel it. diaries. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? It's funny because I've been reflecting a lot on my childhood travels. And I actually think one of my earliest memories was in preparation for going to Uganda, we had to get vaccinated. And Mm -hmm. I remember being in the travel clinic and my mom made my dad go first to get the shot so that we wouldn't be afraid. And I remember him wincing and running under a chair. I was like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, and, you know, that's probably my earliest memory of travel. And then, you know, maybe a few weeks later, we ended up going to Uganda. That was my first time there. We stopped and we spent time with family in London on the way. And from that trip to Uganda, I really, I don't remember a whole lot, but I remember going to Queen Elizabeth National Park. And like, I remember the chimpanzees jumping on the car when we first got in. Um, So, yeah. So you grew up in the States. Yeah, I grew up in Detroit. In Detroit. Mm -hmm. So Detroit and then Uganda, quite a contrast. What was it like? I mean, obviously, your your parents are Ugandan, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I assume that you'd heard stories about, you know, life there and the culture there before you visited for the first time. But when you actually arrived and you got off the plane, it must have been quite a contrast. What was your impression when you first visited? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I was six, so I don't have like a super clear memory of everything. I think what I deduced about Uganda in my childhood is that that's my other home, you know, and that it's different from Detroit, but it's just different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. And it's interesting because Uganda is incredibly lush and there's lots of fresh fruit and fresh vegetables and the weather is perfect because it's, you know, it's on the equator. And I just remember (laughs) it wasn't until I think my early twenties that I ended up going to another African country. And I thought that the entirety of Africa was just super lush (laughs) because that was my experience being in Uganda, which is obviously not the case. But yeah, that that's what I would say. It just, it was different, but it was home. Mm, and you felt that just the, the second that you got there. That's so lovely. A place yeah. that has that kind of spiritual connection, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um, in Detroit, I, I heard you explain on, an, on another podcast um, that you grew up in a kind of Ugandan and Kenyan community. Yeah. So I was really excited to ask you as someone who has an affinity with Kenya, where do you love most in Kenya and what do you love most about Kenya? Where I love most is probably Lamu. Mm -hmm. So what part of Kenya is that? Lamu, it's on the coast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's on the coast. Um, It's a small island and there's no cars on the island. There's some donkeys. And you really get that like Swahili architecture and, you know, there's a strong Muslim culture. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It's just, I I keep saying, I'm going to write my next book in Lamu. There's just something so peaceful and beautiful about it. And the people there are amazing. The food is absolutely delicious. I had fish samosas there for the first time in my life. 
Uh, I texted my mom like, oh, my God, they make fish samosas here because <laughs> my mom <laughs> makes very good samosas as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's just such an incredibly special place. So it's an island off the coast of Kenya. So how do you how do you get to it? Yeah, you just well, we flew like Nairobi to Lamu. Oh, lovely. And then we oh. took a boat to where we were staying. So speaking of places that have that special place in your heart, chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. What would that be? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm like, hold on. I have to pull up my countries by the year that I visited them. That makes everything easier. Okay. The first place that I really fell in love with, I think the first place I really fell in love with was Japan. So I moved to Japan in 2008. It was my first time living abroad. It was my first time even visiting Asia. And it was one of the best years of my life. So what took you there? So I had been working in the pharmaceutical industry for two years. And I was doing incredibly well, um, making a lot of money. And I had just gotten, I was on the verge of a third promotion in two years. And I just wasn't fulfilled. And so I just decided to quit my job, shave my head, and go teach English in Japan. Um, my family wasn't super supportive, <laughs> <laughs> but I always do what I want to do. Uh, so that's that's what took me there, just sort of trying, trying something new. And did that give you a real taste of the travel bug of, of, of living life in other places? Yeah, for sure. So Japan was the 10th country that I visited. And I think I'd been to like one or two territories. And um, yeah, of course, like it exposed me to so many other people who lived in different places. It just immersed me in a culture, which, you know, traveling, you get to learn a lot about culture, but to be immersed in a culture by living there is something completely different. Mm -hmm. And obviously going from the U.S. to Japan is a stark difference because there isn't you know, Romanized words everywhere. You're looking at kanji, you're looking at katakana, you're looking at hiragana. When you're when you're just reading, you can't, right? You know? And so I did study Japanese while I was there. But even I remember the first few weeks when I didn't speak any Japanese and I would go to the grocery store. Thank God my mom gave me like this handheld uh, translator. Because this is, you have to think, this is before apps on cell phones. Yeah. So this is before you have all of these tools on your phone to help you survive. Um, so I had a handheld translator that I would use in the grocery store. And I remember when I would check out, I wouldn't even turn off the music in my headphones because like with French or Spanish or Portuguese um, or Italian, if they're talking, I can understand what the, you know, maybe not 100%, but I can get some words. With Japanese, I'm like, I literally cannot understand anything. So I can leave my music on and just, yeah, <laughs> just nod, um, you know, and, and look at the numbers and then pay by card or like, at least I can see the numbers and I can look at the numbers on the money. But yeah, that, so the first few weeks, the first few months, really, I was like, you know, it was weird because I was just living in my own head for a really long time. And I remember maybe six months in, I remember missing overhearing people's conversations on the train because I thought to myself, I don't even remember what people talk about 
in public because I couldn't understand anything. Yeah. Um, but it was, I mean, the friends that I met, um, what I learned about the culture, the country, what I learned about myself, it was just really, truly one of the best years of my life. It's interesting. Japan comes up a lot on the podcast. I think it appeals so much to travelers, mm-hmm. people who have the wanderlust bug, mm-hmm. because it is such a stark contrasting culture that I've not been, but I've been told so many times that it's the nearest you could get to feeling like you're almost on another planet mm. because the culture is just so starkly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Is that how, and that's how you felt? Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously it depends where you come from. Cause I think if you're coming from Korea, you wouldn't think it was so different, but yeah, as certainly as someone who's Anglophone, it's definitely incredibly incredibly different. Yeah. I mean, the culture, it's, it's interesting because a lot of Japanese culture I found to be similar to Ugandan culture in terms of like how you welcome people and how you offer people food and drink and that sort of thing. Um, Mm. but just, I think for me, the biggest thing was probably how they respect and love nature. That became a really big thing for me. Mm. And that is something like, I'm just so much more appreciative of the simplicity of nature and the beauty of nature in a way that I never was before I lived there. Mm. And did you get out and about a lot in the nature of Japan? Because, of course, so many people will think Japan, they'll think of Tokyo, they'll think of like the bustling cities. But then, you know, there's the ryokans in the in the countryside and such beauty, natural beauty there. Yeah, I mean, I climbed Mount Fuji. Um, I got to experience Ohanami, which is the cherry blossom festival. Um, I went to Hiroshima. Like, yeah, I did a a lot in Japan when I was there. Mm. So it was after that that you moved to London to study at the London School of Economics. Fellow LSE alum. I wonder if you were there at the same time. Um, I was there 2009. Wait, when did I get there? Yeah, 2009. Oh my God, we were. Oh, wow. Yeah. What did you uh, study? An- social anthropology. Oh, wow. So yeah, we were probably mm. kind of moving in the same spaces because I did um, development studies. Yeah. What a shame that our paths never crossed, <laughs> but they have now. So, and then you went on to work at the UN. So I wondered with th- both those things, did, did those experiences of studying international development working at the United Nations, feed into your ambition to then visit all the UN countries that exist today? Um, That's interesting. I mean, maybe on some level, but in 2009, so before I moved to London, so I finished in Japan in February 2009 and decided that I wanted to just travel. Uh, between February and starting school in October. And so like I went to Fiji, I went to Australia, I did a road trip in the US, I went to Costa Rica, I was all over the place. And during that time, I started my travel blog, the Catch Me If You Can. Um, And so I have pretty much wanted to visit every country in the world for a pretty long time. Since my early 20s, I just always thought I would finish by the time I was like 40 or 50. Uh, so I think what studying at LSE did for me was made me more familiar with more countries, right? Not only what I was studying, like global and economic history, like political and economic history, um, but also just meeting people. At one point, LSE had more nationalities than the UN 
represented. Mm. So, mm. so yeah, it really was quite, quite incredible. And so I think to that end, I learned a lot more about the world. Um, and if anything, it bolstered my desire to do it, but I wouldn't say it started, I would think it started before then. So you, you, you finished your studies and you were working and then what was the actual catalyst to be like, right, let us go. I'm doing this, the catalyst for getting going. So again, I'd already planned to visit every country in the world. So it's really about why did I do it quicker? I guess Mm -hmm. is the real Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Um, So in 2017, I was in Bali. Indonesia was my 60th country. And um, I was sitting with a friend actually. And I was just like, "Uh, like, what am I doing with my life? Because I quit my last job in 2015. I was working at a consulting company. I quit and I started my own business and had been doing that for two years, but was still sort of like floating Around. And so Bali, you know, I was going to find myself as one does in Bali. And uh, I was saying to my friend, like, I just, I want to do something. I don't know what I want to do. I want Oprah to interview me. That's what I told my friend. She's like, why would Oprah <laughs> interview you? And I was like, I don't know, I'll figure something out. And that's a great ambition, by the way. I love that. <laughs> You've got Holly Rubenstein today, but Oprah <laughs> will be you. next. Or oh, have you, has Oprah happened yet? It has not happened yet, but I'm pretty sure I'm on her radar. Amazing. Yeah. She's, she's like my all time, (laughs) all time hero. Um, and so at the same time, I'd read about an American woman, Cassie Day Picole, who'd gotten the Guinness record for doing it the fastest. And there was a lot of publicity around it because she claimed she was the first woman to do it, which wasn't true. Um, but which is fine. Like she still did something amazing. And so anyway, and I found myself in an internet rabbit hole and I found out that no black woman had been to every country in the world, but one black man had who I've subsequently met. Uh, And so I decided I'm going to do it. I have 135 countries to go. I'm going to do it by my 35th birthday and I'll be the first black woman to do it. Awesome. So I did. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. And when you set about doing that, did you have any objectives kind of beyond experiencing each country and kind of counting them? Um, No, I mean, I just really wanted to see the world. Like I'm a super curious person. So I just was like, okay, I just want to go to these countries, learn about their culture, photograph it because I do photography and then just share stories, you know, share stories via Instagram. Because like I, for me, I love I used to love Instagram before the algorithm because Mm -hmm. I love photography and I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller. So it was always beautiful for me to tell stories of places like, like a place like Cuba that people know nothing about to be able to tell those stories of Cuban, of Cubans um, with something beautiful and, you know, to show people what life was like in Benin when I lived there, um, which I did via my blog. So for me, I've always been a storyteller and I've always enjoyed telling stories of the places that I've been and sharing images. So for me, it was just that, like, I'm going to go travel, take pictures, tell stories, and that's it. And it then turned into something so much bigger that I never could have imagined. Like now I'm writing a book for National Geographic. I wish I knew I was going to write a book before because I would have taken notes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can like recap over some of these things you might be writing about today. So it will be a good refresher. (laughs) Chapter three is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Oh, for me, it's impossible because I learned the most about myself through people. 
I mean, it's interesting because I think a lot about this trip in Namibia that I did with these two guys who were essentially strangers. Um, but one of them I'd met at a house party a few days ago, a few days before in Johannesburg. And I was traveling solo to Namibia and I was like, oh, you want to go to Namibia with me? <laughs> and um, he's like, okay, cool. And then he's like, do you mind if my friend comes? I'm like, cool, whatever. And so we went and we did this really epic road trip and we really formed like a lifelong bond. And, you know, it, I just remember there were so many beautiful moments on the trip and it always is just a reminder that strangers are just friends that you haven't met yet. Mm, um, and nice. yeah. And like one of, one of the guys has really become one of my closest friends. And I just think like, had we never done that trip to Namibia, we never would be, as close as we are. And like, you know, he's really impactful in my life. And so that would probably be one that I would say. And to be open-minded to people, like you said, you barely knew them, right? Oh, really? I didn't know. The one, <laughs> one of them I met in the car on the way to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So I creating those meaningful relationships requires having an open mind and an open heart when it comes to travel. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And I, I mean, that's what I, I always say. If if you think you're a good person, you shouldn't assume someone is a bad person just because you don't know them. And I think, you know, when people ask me, are you afraid to travel to these countries? I'm like, I'm not afraid of people. And if I'm not afraid of people, then there's nothing for me to be afraid of. Mm, exactly. Because a lot of people have asked you, haven't they, particularly given a large or a, a significant portion of your travels were solo travels. They, they, it, it does, you know, even for me, I think, God, wow, that is so freaking brave. But, <laughs> but you don't, you don't really see it that way, right? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I, because again, what am what is there to fear? Like I, yeah, I really, I move um, with positive energy and I feel like that's what I'm constantly met with. Like even I remember traveling to Pakistan, I went through Oman and I remember the morning I was going to board to check in, there were only men in line and I'm like, oh, whoa. So I get to the front desk and I'm like, can you sit me in a row by myself? You know, because I don't want to be uncomfortable, but I also don't want them to be uncomfortable because, mm -hmm. you know, Pakistan is pretty conservative. And so they were really nice and they put me in a row by myself. And as I was going to the to board the plane, they kept asking, where are you going? I'm like, Islamabad. Like, this is the only way, <laughs> you know, this, this plane is only going to Islamabad. And people kept asking me, but why are you going? I'm like, I'm a tourist. And, um, you know, and so for sure, when I was on the plane, I was like, wow, literally, I was the only woman on the plane. I'm like, this is so crazy. That's nice. And <laughs> as I was getting off of the plane, this a uh, gentleman starts talking to me and, you know, he's like, oh, what are you doing? And I'm telling him I'm traveling. He's like, oh, okay. And he's like, well, take my number. Like, if you need anything while you're in Islamabad, please feel free to reach out. I'm like, thank you so much. He ends up bringing me a luggage cart without me asking and just super kind. And the entire time I was in Pakistan, I think there was one woman, there was one woman I hung out with, but outside of that, it was all men. And I just, it was such a, I had such a beautiful time. And these were all people that I met in the country. And mm -hmm. it was great. You know, mm -hmm. I hung out with some photographers. Um, the woman, she was a, a jewelry designer and it was great. 
you know. What was um what was Pakistan like as a country? Yeah, it was so Islamabad um is a planned city because they planned for it to be the capital. I don't like cities like that. So I didn't love Islamabad, but I was there on their independence day. So it was like it was really cool to see like the streets were flooded with flags and people were just so excited. So that was really cool to see. I preferred Lahore. Uh, you get a lot more of the culture and the history. Um, the old city is really beautiful, great food, beautiful, beautiful um, mosque that we went to and like enjoyed sunset there. Uh, just really just beautiful, delicious food. Uh, and then we went to Wagga border, which is the border between India and Pakistan. And they have this like flag ceremony, which is like the best sporting event that I've ever been to. Uh, wow. I'm like, tell really me about see, it. Yeah. So you really see the country pride on display. So obviously there's a border between, but there's a huge crowd on the Pakistan side and as well as on the India side. Mm-hmm. And all I can describe it as is in the U.S., we have like black fraternities and sororities do step shows. Um, and that's what it was. That's the only way I can describe it. But it like it felt like a sporting event in terms of just like the crowd and the passion and everybody yelling. Um, and it all is just to bring down the flags for the day. And they do it every single day. Well, it's so politically charged, of course, isn't it still? It, I mean... <laughs> They're friendly. Did you feel that? No, I mean, it's there it felt like a friendly rival. Like for sure on the larger political scale, yes. I To get from Bhutan to Pakistan, I had to fly from Bhutan to India. You can't fly from India to Pakistan. So I had to fly to Oman and then to Pakistan. So on a larger macro level, yes, there's tensions. But at the Wagga border, it's not about tension. It's about good fun. It's about you know, um, pride in one's country. But I wouldn't say there it's not about political tension. They're definitely friendly. So it's like a spectacle. It's a spectacle for sure. Yeah. Awesome. That's so cool. I love that. And on on a kind of more general, in a more general sense, you know, what advice would you give to someone who wants to embark on a longer journey as a solo traveler? I mean, I think The biggest thing is you have to be open because obviously you'll make plans and those plans will get messed up for whatever reason. Like if you have a hike planned and it rains or, you know, you miss a flight or you miss a bus or you take a bus and you get off at the wrong stop. (laughs) You know, I think you just have to be really open and really flexible and really trusting the universe or God or Allah or Jehovah or whomever you feel protects you. Um, on this planet and and just really trust that source, that energy source and, and trust yourself. You should, you know, be confident in, in your own intuition um, mm-hmm. and then trust people. I think if you move with this energy of, oh, someone's going to rob me. Oh, someone's going to do this. Then it's going to happen. You're pulling it towards you. I mean, be mm-hmm. be smart, right? Be, be, <laughs> be smart, but be open and... Yeah, be positive. Because I always tell people, I've never had food poisoning. I always say my stomach is ever. coated. In, and in that never. whole, oh my God, that is, I, that is extraordinary. Never in my whole life. Never what a robust life constitution you must have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, um, and I never have used a hotel safe. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. And I've mm-hmm. never had anything stolen from me. So, you know, I really am a strong believer in... Like most people are good. That's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my travels. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And obviously, 
you have racked up a hell of a lot of air miles along the oh way. Oh my God, can I just say today, literally on my flight yesterday, I became a million miler with Delta. Yesterday. Million miler. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, I've flown probably <laughs> closer to 1.5 million miles over my lifetime, but with Delta, I've flown 1 million. So, okay. Following on from that, I'm assuming that you must have also had some flack for your carbon footprint mm-hmm. with with that amount of flying. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. Um, there's a couple of things because we all will try to say, oh, well, don't do this, don't do that. Number one, because people ask me a lot about carbon credits and offsets, carbon offsets. Mm-hmm. If you know anything about those programs, they're actually not that good and they aren't actually doing that much good. You know, there's studies that show it. I've studied it. I've looked at it. So I'm not one who will ever pay an airline for the offputs To like plant a forest. Yeah. It, it's, to like offset. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So they'll charge you whatever percentage of your ticket for your carb to offset your carbon for this flight. So that's number one. I don't believe in carbon offsets because they simply don't work. They're politically and economically inefficient for a number of reasons that are too many to go into. Then number two, um, I totally understand the idea of reducing one's carbon footprint. Um, And I do a lot in other ways. Like I don't buy a ton of clothes. Like the fashion industry is actually worse for the planet than the travel industry, which a lot of people don't talk about. So people will go and buy these cheap throwaway clothes at like um, Primark (laughs) for your audience, (laughs) Uh, you know, in places like that. And they don't think about that carbon output. Um, so that's the other thing. So I try to do things like reducing my use of single use plastic, not buying a lot of clothing, uh, reusing a lot. Um, I give away a lot of clothing, which, you know, ultimately helps to reduce like the carbon output from that market. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is that even if I don't get on a plane, that plane will still fly. And I think that with regard to flying in general, there has to be an intergovernmental effort to control the airline industry because they have to just reduce the amount of flights. If they're constantly increasing the amount of flights, these flights are not 100% sold out. That's where the issue is. It's not me. It's with the airlines. And I think a lot of environmental activists want to blame individual people, but no, like we have to stop doing that. We have to actually figure out how can we lobby our governments globally to control and regulate the airline industry to limit the amount of flights that are available. Mm. Because if I can't like, okay, if I want to leave Mexico tomorrow and there is not a flight because the Mexican government has limited the amount of flights, cool. Then I have to fly the next day. It may be inconvenient, but I'll just fly the next day. You know? So it's not on me. It's on really governments regulating the airline industry. That's so interesting. It's like the plastic, you know, I fight to reduce my use of plastic to encourage other people to do it. But at the end of the day, if these plastic companies are still creating plastic, whatever I do doesn't matter because it's all still just sitting on this planet. So there has to be regulation of the companies making plastic, even though we can do what we can do individually. But at the end of the day, it's not going to make the large scale change that we need to save the planet. Mm. But we should Mm. still be as conscious as we can. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Well, let's pause there and move on to chapter four, which is your all-time favorite destination. I have not asked this to someone who has been to pretty much every destination. I mean, aside from maybe some of the, like, uh, what what would you call them? Territory. The the islands and the, the territories. territories. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So... I know that it's an impossible one, but I'm going to push you for an answer. What comes to mind? I will not just give today? you one. <laughs> oh, I can't. No, I literally no. can't. I know. I didn't. I didn't know this. Was, <laughs> I can't. Honestly, it's like sure. Maybe when I was at country number thirty, I had a favorite. But after visiting every country in the world, it's literally impossible. I mean, I can name some of the ones that I'm absolutely obsessed with, but please I, name I some. will never be able to say one. Um, let's see. Iran, Colombia, Cuba, Sudan, Namibia, Senegal, Japan. Those uh, are some great ones to get yeah. started with. Those are, <laughs> I would say those are in the top. <laughs> so the first, what was the first one that you said? Oh, Iran. Mm-hmm. Iran, oh my gosh, Iran is a country I want to visit so much. And in fact, this podcast has a really strong listenership in Iran. Mm. So what is it about Iran that you fell in love with? Oof, Iran, the people, for sure. Some of the nicest people in the world. Um, and Esfahan, I think, is my favorite city. So I did like a road trip. Um, I started in Tehran and then I think went to Yaz and then... Esfahan and we finished in Shiraz. Esfahan, I mean, like the mosque there is just so glorious. It's huge. It's just the intricacy of the Persian tile work and architecture. Um, It's just such a beautiful city. For me in Iran, it was actually mostly the mosques. 
that I fell in love with, like, cause I love color. And so just the way that they use color in all of their masks, it's just, it's so beautiful. And you really feel a sense of peace in the country um, as you're moving about. And just a sense of joy as well. I was there doing, during Nauru's, um, which is their New Year's. And there was just such a sense of joy and peace and just love in the country. And it was just a beautiful experience. Oh, that sounds incredible. And then... Sudan was the one of the last place you, you mentioned. So, I mean, that might not be on high on people's kind of travel radar as a, a you know, a vacation destination. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me what you loved about that. Yeah, um, I was able to visit with um, my Sudanese friends. It was Christmas and obviously they don't celebrate Christmas there, but um, it was really just getting fully immersed in the culture. The food is amazing. And then I learned so much about history because Sudan has more pyramids and older pyramids than Egypt which no one ever talks about, which no, is so I didn't bizarre. Know that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, because you That's have the amazing, Kush- actually. What? Yeah. More- and no That's one more- ever talks about it. So you had the Kush Kingdom, which actually included Aswan in the south of Egypt. Um, and so we went to Meroe, which is where the pyramids were. And, you know, it just blew my mind because we're looking at these places that date back three, 4,000 years, right? There's no ticket booth. There's like this older man was guarding this one area, I guess, if you even want to call it that. I mean, he was quite old, so not really. He was just sort of a keeper. And, you know, you're like, whoa, this is three, four thousand years old. You go to Egypt. There's so many crowds. You can't really get close to things. And here we are. It's just there. Like even for the pyramids, we went like close to sunrise. We were the only ones there. And I'm just like. This is insane. <laughs> like we're that here looking at these pyramids and we're the only ones here. It was it was really really wild. Um but because you know they just don't have tourism, really. Were those pyramids um all in one particular area? Like was there an area of Sudan that you traveled to for that? Yeah, Meroe. So it's M E R O E. Um with some How accents, easy was it to but... get there? Yeah, I mean, you had to get permits, I believe, to like go from Khartoum up to to there. Um, but I don't, I don't think. I mean, it's just a road trip. I can't remember how many hours. Maybe like two or three hours. It's just a road trip. Gosh, it makes that makes me sad that somewhere that has such history and heritage is, you know, doesn't have the infrastructure to be able to to allow people to, to enjoy it. Uh, yeah, but people the thing is, it. like, people can. People can go and enjoy it. It's just, it's one of these things, I mean, and again, another a longer conversation is, like, how the travel industry chooses winners and losers. You know, um, I never felt unsafe in Sudan at any point, you know? But why is Egypt a winner? You know, it's less black African, you know? So I think there's always that. There's always the race factor to consider. Um, But it's like Sudanese history has been erased from our history books, you know? And you can't, you cannot, because Egypt is a new concept, right? All of these borders are political and they're fairly new in terms of, if we're looking at history, it's a fairly new concept of Egypt, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. in the Kush kingdom was the start of all of that and it moved north along the Nile. So I think it's really interesting that we've just 
chosen to not talk about Sudan when we talk about Egyptian history. Like it, mm. it all used to be one large swath of land, but yeah. we limit it at that border, which I find really fascinating. But I think, you know, because also you can go diving in the Red Sea in Port Sudan and you can see exactly what you're seeing. Maybe not exactly, but like similar to what you would see in Sharm el Sheikh. Mm. So why aren't people going to Port Sudan? Mm. I don't I don't think it's a safety issue. You, you, you've said in an interview before that there's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and that's the thing, because I think the U.S. still has an embargo on Sudan. I have no idea why. I know there is issues in this, you know, obviously in the south at the border with South Sudan. But I really just don't understand why Sudan doesn't have more t- uh, tourism. Mm. Oh, well, I hope that I can make it there one day and see, <laughs> see, see that beauty. It sounds absolutely incredible. So I put a call out on my Instagram account to the people who tune into the podcast to ask them of all the countries that you visited, which are they most curious about? Because, you know, you look through that list of mm-hmm. 195 countries, some of them you're like, God, I, you know, where even is that? Like, you know, yeah. And um, it's I've absolutely loved getting their responses. Everyone is so excited to hear from you. And so the two places that got the most questions were Eritrea, Adele, Barbara, Alexis, Laura, all want to know, what was it like visiting Eritrea? Let's start with that. Eritrea. So, you know, they call Eritrea the North Korea of Africa. Wow. Because it's pretty closed. Yeah, because it's pretty closed. And actually, the only reason it began opening recently was because of Ethiopia's new prime minister who sort of normalized relationships with Eritrea. And so it's become a little more open, like Ethiopian Airlines flies there now. So I think I went there in December 2018. I think it was December 2018. And so I actually, so when I went there, because getting a visa is notoriously hard. Is it? Right. Yeah. So when I went there, Ugandans were the only nationality in the world that didn't need a visa to enter. Oh my God, that's a bit of good luck. Yeah. (laughs) And then Sudanese were the only nationality who could get a visa on arrival. So I ended up traveling there with two of my Sudanese friends. Mm -hmm. So it was perfect. And it just so interesting and incredible. So It was colonized briefly by the Italians and Asmara, the capital they call Piccolo Roma, which is crazy because I lived in Rome. And when I was in Asmara, I had such a weird feeling because I'm like, I could be in Rome right now. Literally, it could be. Yes, it was the the architecture or the the architecture. But even like when you go for a cafe for a cafe for coffee, like cafe for coffee, (laughs) um, you stand up at the bar like you would in Italy. And it was just so crazy. And some older people there still speak Italian. And then as you go through the countryside, because we went to visit a few different cities, the Italians built these roads that just snake through the mountains and it was just really beautiful. Um, and we went to, what was it? Masawa, which is um, a city on the, on the, I think, is that the Red Sea? I think it's the Red Sea. Yeah, it's the Red Sea. And it was just beautiful. And like there I sort of was reminded of Havana and the way you have this beautiful architecture that you clearly shows its age, but just a really beautiful country. And of course, good food. (laughs) Yeah. And then the other place that uh, George and Tom and Katie asked about uh, was Tuvalu. Tuvalu. It's 
So, wow. So it is um, really far away (laughs) Uh, from everything, not even like centering the U.S. or anything like Tuvalu is just quite except for Fiji. The closest country is Fiji to it. And uh, that's the only way you can fly in and out of it. Fun fact, it's airport code is fun, which I love. Um, (laughs) You must have got to know those airport codes pretty well. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was um, it was really interesting. This country is really small. So when I was on the flight there, this woman was like, why are you going to Tuvalu? And I was like, oh, I'm a tourist. And she was like, really? She was local. And she said, okay, take my number. Like, I'll take you around. And it turns out her husband used to be a politician. And he was the one who orchestrated the deal for, um, I think it was an American company to buy buy .tv. So, you know, every country, like you have .co.uk, we have Mm -hmm. .com. Tuvalu had .tv, and so they sold it to a private company. They sold that, like, internet code, Mm -hmm. which ended up building roads in the country and all these other things. So her Uh husband was the one who orchestrated that deal. They were super sweet. They took me around the country, but then the next day, they gave me a boat with two men who could take me around to some of the other islands. And so got to see some of the other islands. Um, Oh, and another marker of the main island is the runway for the, the planes. It's, it's where people play volleyball and they play football. And at night, some people sleep on the runway because it's so hot and there's just a breeze if you sleep there. And so there's a picture of me standing on that runway because it's just like it's a community center, essentially. That's that's nuts. So, but yeah. because the flights are so infrequent, it could be used oh, so in, in all these different yeah. ways. Uh, there's not a flight every day for sure. In terms of how it looks and its landscape, what what's the the kind of yeah, topography? Um, Lots of palm tree. It's very, very small. So like you can basically, I mean, you can't see the water from everywhere if you're standing at eye level, but it's a really, the the main island is very narrow. Um, Lots of palm trees and white sand beaches, beautiful turquoise waters. Like it's actually really beautiful, but you know, the oceans are rising. And so it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Really? And is that something that you spoke about a lot with the locals? Oh, yeah. I mean, throughout the South Pacific, um, you know, you know, when you live in a big country, especially in a city, you can't see the damage of climate change. Of course, we've all been suffering with the high temperatures this summer. But when you're on an island and you see like people's houses disappearing, even Venice, like in Venice, Mm -hmm. they see Mm -hmm. it um, in Venice, Italy. But what, for people living in cities and big countries, they can't see it. So they don't think their behavior is actually doing anything. And you have people who can say climate change doesn't exist. When you're on these small islands in the South Pacific, there is not one person on that island who will tell you that climate change doesn't exist because they can see clearly, even if they're a 20 year old, they can see that their country is literally shrinking. Mm. Mm. I mean I think this summer has been probably one of the first summers where even people who live in cities couldn't really deny it did you see the footage of Portobello Road in Notting Hill and the flood the floods that were like five feet high taking out whole um, 
whole stores, whole apartments, all the lower ground floor flats just absolutely flooded. That was earlier in the summer. And then there was the New, the New York Manhattan yeah, floods, I, which I know were just nuts. A, f- a friend of mine has to, he's looking for a new home because his apartment flooded and it's destroyed. And yeah. that's from a hurricane that was happening in the Caribbean. Mm. New York is very far from the Caribbean. Mm. So if people want to act like climate change isn't happening, I'm just like, okay, go travel a little bit and you'll understand even more. Mm. Yeah. Let's pause there. Chapter five is your hidden gem, a place that you fell in love with that my listeners would never have heard of. Oh, okay. Hold on. Sorry. I have to keep going back to my... I love that you can like look at the list though. Uh, that it like tr- <laughs> triggers all the different memories. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, let me see that people wouldn't think of hidden gem. Okay, I'll do three. All righty. So hidden gems. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily it's specific countries, but places within countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one that I thought of was Djibouti in the Horn of Africa a country that people just make fun of (laughs) because of the name. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But it has uh, Lake Asal, which is actually saltier than the Dead Sea. And it's just really beautiful. Um, Like, because you look at it and it looks like snow, but it's Uh. just salt. And so that was one of the most beautiful places that I saw, like, in that region in a place that I definitely have not seen other images from. Did you swim in it or do you? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. It doesn't sting. (laughs) Oh, I got, I got the water in my eye. Oh my God. It was so bad. (laughs) It was so bad because again, it's saltier than the Dead Sea. So it's even easier to float um, there if you've ever been to the Dead Sea. Mm. The next place I was thinking of is Turkmenistan, which is one of the craziest places that I've ever been. Like most bizarre, I would use that word. Um, but there's a place there called uh, Darvasa Gas Crater, which is also called the Door to Hell. And basically, there was a gas leak, I think, in the 70s. And so there's just this gas there burning in a hole. And it's very, it's quite far from Ashgabat, the capital, but it's worth the drive. And you have to camp there and there's nothing there. Like there's no amenities or anything. You have to take your food in, mm-hmm. take your tent, take everything there. So beautiful. Like just at when, when we first arrived, I was disappointed because the sun was still up. And I was like, this is what we drove all this way for. Um, I can't picture sun, it though. What does it look like? It's literally a hole in the ground. And at night, it's just fire coming from a very large hole in the ground. That is right. literally all it is. But it's so stunning. There is zero light pollution there. So it's like this hole of fire sitting under some of the most beautiful nightscapes that I've ever seen. And, you know, pictures can't, I think pictures don't do it justice, but it's one of the most amazing things um, that I've wow. ever seen. Well, that's yeah. a, wow. I've never heard of it. Yeah, absolutely. I need to look stunning. it up to look at some photos. Yeah, it's 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 really quite stunning. And then the the last thing I would say, and this is a little weird, and I'm not sure people will actually do this, but I spent I spent three hours in a cattle camp in South Sudan, and it was actually one of my favorite memories because I I went there with some South Sudanese people that I'd met. And they'd never been to a cattle camp before. And even when I told them, they were like, what? I was like, I want to go to a cattle camp. I don't even know where I got that idea. Is a cattle camp but, a cattle, like a cattle farm? 
No. So basically it is, it's a migratory group of people. So they just stop. It's like a community of people who have a ton of cattle. Yeah. And so they, they stop for a bit of time, the cattle graze. And then once they can't graze anymore, they move on. And nomadic people. Exactly. Yeah. They're nomadic people. And so I just wanted to go see what their life was like. And we ended up spending three hours there. And it was just really interesting just to learn about the cattle. And I got to milk a cow (laughs) and um, just really being completely immersed. I mean, when we left, our feet were covered in cow dung (laughs) and mud. But it was just such a beautiful experience of just like being there and immersing with them and you know, I asked, I said, well, how many cattle am I worth? <laughs> and like, what's my bride price? And I was told, <laughs> the guy told me 30 maximum. He said, but I'll get 30, but that's the maximum. Because for them, I'm quite short. I'm 5'7". I don't know what that is in meters, but I'm 5'7", which... In, which isn't short. Yeah, it's not short no, at all. I'm 5'6". But there, there I'm short. So. Yeah. Also, I, I imagine it would be just really interesting to speak to people whose life is way of life is so simple in a way Mm -hmm. in that nomadic way of life being outside every day being Mm -hmm. surrounded by nature surrounded by their animals Mm -hmm. whom they love dearly it's I mean it was really a fascinating thing and I'm like how do you know which one are yours they're like of course we know and I asked him when I said, how many do you have? And he was so offended. He was like, that's like asking me how much money I have in my bank account. I'm, like, I'm sorry. Um, those are amazing choices. Uh, definitely haven't come up on the podcast before. And uh, I think my listeners will absolutely love those. Some brilliant hidden gems. Thank you. In contrast, then, uh, the penultimate chapter is chapter six, which is your worst travel experience or the place that you would never choose to go back to. That's easy. Now now we're getting to the easy questions. Um, <laughs> two places where I do not have a very strong desire to go back are Moldova and Belarus. Mm-hmm. So Moldova, um, you know, it just was not nice to me from the moment I got there because I had to, my phone wasn't working. And usually if I do currency exchange, I'll obviously pull up the rate on my phone. And then compare it to what they're offering. And and so I had to change money in the airport. And turns out they gave me one third of the value. But I oh. had no idea. So I'm like, okay. So then um, that was annoying. But I didn't even know until I got to my hotel. Then the taxi ended up charging me double. But again, oh, I didn't know. So once I got to my hotel and I told the guy everything, he's like, they gave you a third of the value. The taxi charged you double. And I'm just like... This is so annoying. Uh, So that was really frustrating. And then I just found that people weren't that warm there. People weren't that open. And when I say that, a lot of people are like, oh, it's because it's Eastern Europe. And I'm like, no, that is not the situation because I love Serbia. I love North Macedonia. There's like tons of places in Eastern Europe that I really thoroughly enjoyed. It was Mm -hmm. just Moldova. I just didn't feel like they were very open. And then um, Belarus same situation like people there were a couple people who were nice and ended up helping us in the end but the overall experience was just not not great Mm -hmm. and how about 
when you had your list of all the countries that you're going to tick off, there must have been some that you were really excited about and others like not so much. Like they were ones that you just wanted to kind of so that you could tick it off, right? For sure. Is there one that comes to mind where you were ambivalent or indifferent about it and then it really was a pleasant surprise? Probably Uzbekistan. Um, Yeah, I really want to go there. I mean, the stands, I was just like, okay. Uh, Speak about colorful, yeah. your love of color. like it's- Exactly. So I didn't know anything about Uzbekistan. That's the thing. Like, I know, geographically speaking, like, I pretty much knew, like, where every country was. But I didn't have, like, in my studies, I focus on Africa. Like, I spend the most time in Africa. So I know a lot about different African countries. I didn't know anything about Uzbekistan. So I was... So pleasantly surprised uh, to to see the textiles, the mosques, um, all of the color that's all over that country. Like I completely fell in love. The people are so fun and spirited. Even there, like some of my favorite memories were with people who spoke no English, mm-hmm. uh, but just had like really beautiful energy. And there was this woman we met at a bakery. She spoke zero English, but she needed me to get this message from her. Basically, she was telling me, I need to get married and have children before I become old and ugly. And that is what (laughs) we were able to hear. (laughs) And it was funny because she was communicating using hands and, you know, and she managed to get her message across to me. Um, I love that that stuck in your mind. (laughs) It did because I'm like, wow, aunties all over the world are the same. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Did you travel through Uzbekistan or or did you focus on one specific city? No, I went to um, Tashkent Mm -hmm. and um, Samarkand and another city that I cannot remember, which is at the border with uh, Afghanistan. Tiramis, Tiramis. And and did one of those stand out in particular? Oh, Samarkand, hands down. Samarkand was the best, yeah. Because you have Registan there, which is this huge, beautiful, colorful complex. Um, It used to be a madras, which is like a Muslim college, kind of. Um, and like beautiful mosques and you can get a ton of textiles. I had, I had pillows made. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, it was great. It was Gorgeous. really great. Well, we have gone all around the world and we're at the final chapter of your travel diaries, Jessica, which is chapter seven, the destination at the top of your travel bucket list. So this is a really unusual one to be asking you, but, um, then I assume there are places that you haven't been that you would still love to go to within within the territories within the countries that you've you've already been to. What's mm-hmm. wh- where where is at the top of your list that you'd love to go? So probably two places. So Venice, Italy, was at the top of my list, and I just went last month. Oh, what um, did you think? It was great. It was really beautiful. There weren't a lot of people. I had been avoiding it. I lived in Italy for three years and I never went because everyone told me how crowded it was. Mm. So I knew that was one of the first places that I wanted to go when the world opened back up, back up because there wouldn't be so many crowds. So I did. Yeah. And it was such a beautiful city, like had a great, great time. So that was at the top. But I would say now two places I really want to go. Greenland is one of them. Uh, I'm really fascinated in terms of just what life is like there mm. um, and just what it looks like. Uh, Cause I don't like to look at pictures of places before I go. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't like do a search of 
Greenland and get pictures of the city. Like I just like to go and just be surprised because <laughs> yeah. I think it's really hard, right? Like now there's so many images of every place on the internet um, that we missed that, right? Because back in the day, you couldn't just Google image the place you're going to. You would just show up and mm. just see it when you get there. So I want to do that. And then the other place I want to go is Santiago de Cuba. So I've been to um, Cuba four times. I'm obsessed with it, but I haven't been to Santiago and I've just heard really great things about it. So I want to go there. Well, Jessica, it has been so fun, so fascinating, so inspiring to speak with you today. Those were your travel diaries. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you so much for having me. What a fascinating woman and really just scratching the surface of every country in the world there. Gosh, wouldn't it be fun to do a uh, part two where we just select countries at random and learn more about them? I'd love to do that. There are just so many more I'd like to ask about. A massive thank you to Jessica for bringing such interesting places to life. Interesting to hear Jessica's views on carbon offsetting. For those looking for some more positive and recommended examples of carbon offsetting programs, make sure you tune in to next week's episode with the presenter and explorer, adventurer, extraordinaire, Steve Backshaw. It is without doubt one of the best so far. I can't wait for you to hear it. For more of Jessica Nabongo's adventures, you can pre-order her first book on Amazon. It will be published by National Geographic and is out in May 2022. In the meantime, you can follow her on Instagram at Jessica Nabongo. Thanks so much for listening today. If you are enjoying the podcast, then don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you really enjoyed it, then if you fancy leaving a rating or a review, that would be extra special. If you want to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. Would love to hear from you as always. And if you can't wait till then, remember there's all of the first five seasons to catch up on. Nearly 70 episodes to keep you busy there. And don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests I always include in the episode show notes. And they're also always on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.